welcome to the Fit for the Future podcast, which helps you navigate this fast-changing world by bringing you ideas, information, interviews, and insights for being fit for the future. Here's your host, Gihan Pereira. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Fit for the Future podcast. It's just the start of winter here in Australia, and here in Perth, it's still quite nice. The weather's pretty good. It's sunny, uh, a reasonably good 21 or 22 degrees today. I went, I went for a nice long walk with my partner, Nikki, along the river, and uh, it's just lots of people out and having a really good time. Also, it's getting towards the end of the financial year here in Australia, which ends at the end of this month. Uh, so I hope your year has been very good. It's been the best year of my business so far and I'm looking forward to that trend continuing and why shouldn't it continue for every year that I'm in business why shouldn't uh, every year of your business be the best year of your business so far and I've also been engaging and investing in some professional development of my own recently I attended a conference in Brisbane called the Myriad Conference uh, and that brought a number of innovators from Australia and from the USA, including some leading innovators from Silicon Valley, to talk about what's around the corner and what's the next big thing. And also t- speaking about the next big thing, my friends Nils Vesk and Blythe Rowe are running a program right at the moment, uh, going around Australia, talking about the next big thing. And it's all about thinking like a futurist. And they shared some great ideas uh, around technology, around the human side of technology in the future, and also about creating great customer experiences and how that's going to change in the future. And today I want to talk about how you can think like a futurist. So I want to start with a confession. I hate futurists. Well, not all futurists, of course, because I'm one myself, but I hate the kind of futurists who tell you that the world is coming to an end, but don't give you any practical advice about what you can do about it. I think you know the kind of futurists I mean. They predict that robots are going to take your job, uh, an Uber-like business will disrupt your industry, whatever it is, blockchain will steal your babies. And the trouble with these predictions is that they're not very useful. Now, of course, we're going through change like never before in human evolution, but nobody really knows. Nobody knows exactly what that change will mean. It definitely won't affect everybody the same way. And it probably won't happen as fast as these doomsday merchants say. Now, yes, there is some change that's going to happen and there's going to be a lot of change that happens. But in most industries and most businesses, you've got at least three to five years to make the change and sometimes even longer. And despite what some of these futurists say, it's not inevitable that you'll lose your job. It's not inevitable that you'll lose your home or your standard of living or your privacy. Now, some people will lose out because they'll refuse to change or they'll be caught unawares. But that doesn't need to be Now, the bad news is that we don't have a crystal ball that tells you exactly what's coming up in the future. But the good news is that we do have signs and indications. And I want to share with you nine skills for thinking like a futurist so you can make better decisions and faster about how to prepare for that future, even if you don't know what what you're facing in that future. So let me give you a summary of the nine skills first, and then we'll jump into them. So the first three skills are where we look at the outside world. Number one, be a possibility thinker, then connect outside technology, and then ask experts outside your industry. Then we break it down and narrow the focus to your own customers and clients. So four is to know what problem you solve, and then map the future customer journey, and then ask your customers for help. And finally, we look at your own thinking and mindset. So number seven is if it ain't broke, break it, and then find a reverse mentor, and finally, use a personal learning network. And for each of these nine skills, I'm going to give you an exercise to help you practice the skill. 
Now you can do this exercise for yourself, but it's much more powerful if you involve the rest of your team as well. That way, you bring them along for the ride. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if you find that they are more enthusiastic about bringing you along for the ride. So for example, a simple way to do this is to set aside a short Think Like a Futurist segment, which only has to be about five or 10 minutes at your regular team meetings. So choose one of these nine skills and lead a short session with your team to do the exercise and just brainstorm some ideas and see what they come up with. So let's look at those nine skills. Number one is to be a possibility thinker. When I show a picture of a self-driving car to a child, their first reaction is usually something like cute or cool. But when I show that same picture to adults in my conference presentations and I ask them for their reaction, there's usually something along the lines of, oh, that's a problem or that's a bit scary. In fact, the adults find many reasons why self-driving cars are a bad thing. For example, we like driving and won't want to give it up. Self-driving cars will never be as safe as human drivers. What if a self-driving car gets a mind of its own and kidnaps my kid when taking them to school? Now, of course, that's partly because we as adults anticipate some of the risks and dangers, and some of them are real, but it's also because children are often more open to possibilities than adults are. And if your initial reaction to something like self-driving cars is more at the scary end, in other words, you immediately think of problems and difficulties and challenges and risks or threats, then you'll struggle more when self-driving cars hit our roads. And even worse, you'll probably dismiss their potential and ignore the impact they will have on many parts of business and society, maybe even your business and definitely your life. Now, on the other hand, if you start by thinking cool, then you're a possibility thinker and you'll be better able to adapt and embrace and even lead these changes. Now, you may not be right at the cool end, but even if you go, hmm, that's interesting, tell me more, that's a pretty good start. Now, neither of those extremes, scary or cool, tells a full story. But practice thinking about what's possible rather than what could go wrong. And don't worry, there are plenty of people who can tell you why something won't work. But the people who will be most valuable in the future are the possibility thinkers. Okay, so here's the first exercise, and this exercise is called Yes And. So choose any new technology or trend, self-driving cars, Snapchat, same-sex marriage, and brainstorm as many ideas as possible about how it could have a positive impact on your role, your business, and your life. And be creative with this and engage your team with this as well. It doesn't matter if that trend or that technology is likely or not. Just get into the mode of thinking positively and thinking about positive impacts. Okay, skill number two is to connect outside technology. The biggest changes to your job and your business will come from outside your industry. Accenture, in their Technology Vision 2016 report, says that almost half of Australian executives expect the greatest risk of disruption from this kind of competition. In, in other words, from outside your industry. And it's all well and good to compare yourself with yourself so you can keep improving. And it's sometimes even worth looking around at the competition so you can strive to be the market leader or continue to be the market leader. But that won't protect you from people outside your industry who come in and steal a march on you and the entire rest of your industry. Now you can't always predict this. 
but you can be more aware of it by training yourself to consider the impact of new technology and trends. Let's take self-driving cars again as an example. Now, self-driving cars will affect a lot of industries. Obviously, car manufacturing and car sales will change because many people just won't have to buy their own cars anymore. And we won't need car insurance because we won't be responsible as drivers for car accidents. What about the multi-billion dollar parking industry? That'll be affected because cars won't be sitting idle in garages and parking spaces all day. What about other things like accommodation, travel and hospitality? They'll be affected as well because people can drive to destinations overnight while they're sleeping in their car rather than taking flights and staying in hotels. On a more sober note, cemeteries, morgues and funeral directors will be affected because there'll be fewer deaths from car accidents. Education will be affected because cars might become mobile classrooms rather than just vehicles for getting you from A to B. Now just think about that list. Some of these connections, such as car sales, insurance, and maybe even parking, are more obvious than others because they're directly related to cars. But some of the others are not so obvious. But that doesn't mean that they aren't important. And if you're in one of these less obvious industries, you'll have an advantage by thinking ahead and assessing the impact of this technology. And, and that's just one, that's just self-driving cars, but think about all the other technology that you see, all the other trends that you see, and figure out how it could affect your industry, positively or negatively. So here's the exercise, it's called Be a Connector. So every time you hear about some new technology or trend, rather than just dismissing it because it's not directly related to you, ask yourself these three questions. How could this affect me? How could this affect my business? And how could this affect my industry? And think about both the positives and negatives, that is both the opportunities and the threats. And if you do this regularly and proactively and involve your team in it as well, you'll spot new opportunities and keep finding ways to keep adding value to yourself and your business. Skill number three is to ask experts outside your industry. Think about carpenters at work who are supposed to wear safety masks because it protects their long-term health. But unfortunately, many carpenters don't wear them. They forget or they find them uncomfortable or find them inconvenient. Some Harvard University researchers wanted to know how to improve the rates of carpenters wearing their safety masks. And they were looking for some ideas. And they asked three groups of people for ideas. So the first group, obviously, is to ask other carpenters because obviously they know their own industry. They also asked roofing contractors because they're also tradies and they're a related trade, so they might have solved the same kind of problem. And then they went completely elsewhere and they asked rollerbladers, not people who make rollerblades, but people who do rollerblading. They're, they're completely unrelated. And what they discovered was that the best ideas didn't come from other carpenters, but they came from the rollerbladers who looked at the problem from a completely different perspective. Now, this is not just because rollerbladers are innately more creative than carpenters. In fact, when the experiment was reversed, carpenters had better ideas for rollerblading safety than the rollerbladers did themselves. The point is that the best ideas for your job, your business or your industry will often come from outside that industry. So get help from outside. Now, obviously, one way of doing this is to bring in people from outside your industry. That's a good thing. But let me tell you about an exercise called random jobs. If you Google the phrase random jobs, you'll find a number of random job generating websites. So pick one of them and look at the first job it shows you and ask yourself, how could this person help me in my job? For example, in one of my recent presentations, I ran this exercise with the audience and uh, one of the audience members who was a bank manager came up with a job, dog walker. 
And she said, after a bit of working with her team, she said, well, you know what? Dog walkers have to be flexible because they have to deal with so many kinds of dogs. And perhaps we should adjust our services to cater for different kinds of customers who come into our branch. So doing this exercise regularly will improve your creativity and flexibility. It might even give you valuable insights into your own role. Skill four is to know what problem you solve. Jamie Kasap, who's the head of Google's global education, in fact, he's called Google's education evangelist, says that when he goes out to schools, he never asks kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? He asks them, what problem do they want to solve? And you might be caught up in your day-to-day work, constantly trying to keep on top of everything and fighting all the everyday challenges in your job or business, but it's worth stopping to take stock and ask yourself the same question. What problem am I really solving? Too many people in business or in their jobs fall in love with their own products, their services and solutions, and they forget about the problems that they're solving for their customers and clients, and they're finding a cure for which there's no known disease. And if you don't solve their problems, they'll find somebody else who will. Now, of course, the even more important question than what problem am I really solving is what problem do I want to solve? Maybe when you grow up. But even if you don't want to go that far just yet, at least be sure that the work you're doing now is solving real customer problems. So here's the exercise and it's called what's your problem? So make a list of all the things that you do regularly in your job or your business. For example, reading and deleting email, making sales appointments, running a weekly staff meeting, filling in a form, recording expenses, following up customers after a sale, and so on. And and you don't have to do everything, but start with the things that first come to mind, especially the things that you do regularly and that take up a lot of your time. And for each of them, give them a rating from zero to 10 based on how much they really solve a customer's problem. So let's start from the top. If customers say this solves a real problem in their life, give it a score of nine or 10. And I'm gonna let you choose which is whether it's a nine or a 10. If it solves a team member's problem, so for example, your weekly staff meeting helps the team collaborate better, then give it a seven or an eight. If it solves a problem from some external party, for example, you have to complete a form for the tax office or for ASIC, then give it a five or a six. If it solves another internal department's problem, for example, you have to complete a purchasing request form in order to buy something, then it's a bit lower, three or a four. If it solves a problem just for yourself, for example, keeping your inbox empty because it'll reduce your stress, then it's a one or a two. Or if it doesn't solve any problem at all, then of course you give it a zero. Now look through your list at anything that doesn't rate a nine or a 10 and decide how to improve it, adapt it or eliminate it. And the lower the rating, the more it should be a candidate for the chopping block. And by looking at the things that you do in your daily life and this way and giving them a rating, you might be surprised to find how little of the work that you and your team do is actually solving customers' problems. What you want to do is maximize that and reduce or eliminate everything else. Okay, skills five is to map the future customer's journey. So we just talked about the importance of understanding the real problem that you solve for customers. The next step is to understand their journey on the way to you solving that problem. And now this, of course, involves the way that they interact with you, but think wider. It also describes the steps before they meet you and after they leave you. For example, imagine a cardiologist who performs surgery on patients who have had a heart attack. Now her customer's journey might start, well, at 
literally, from the time the ambulance receives the emergency call and rushes the patient to the emergency room of her hospital. She performs the surgery, the patient eventually leaves hospital and constant monitoring happens over the years. Now, that's a customer journey and I've given you the broad overview and you can write that down or draw out a picture storyboard in a lot more detail, but imagine how this customer journey might change in the future. So in that scenario, you can imagine that in the not too distant future, when somebody has a heart attack, a self-driving ambulance will come along to pick them up. And because all the traffic on the road is self-driving, they automatically stop to let emergency vehicles through. They don't, the ambulance no longer lead, needs flashing lights and a siren. Along the way, the patient's wearables transmit data wirelessly to artificial intelligence software in the cloud that uses big data to make a diagnosis and recommend the best procedure to their cardiologist. Also on the way to the hospital, there's a 3D printer in the ambulance that prints a stent for that operation. And equipment and medical supplies are delivered by an autonomous drone. During the surgery, the cardiologist is helped by nanotechnology robots inside the patient's body. And after the surgery, the patient uses an ECG app on their phone to take regular ECGs themselves, and that alerts the cardiologist of any potential problems. Now, all this technology exists now. It might not be connected this way, but it will be soon. And if you're involved at any step of the journey, then it's wise to understand how technology will change that journey in the future. So here's the exercise, and I call it the future customer journey. So put yourself in your typical customer's shoes and map out their journey, including what happens before they engage with you and what happens after they complete their interaction, their transaction with you. And for each step, imagine what might change in the future. For example, will this be automated? Will this be outsourced? Will the customer be able to do this themselves? Can we do this for the customer instead of some other supplier? And will this be needed at all in the future? When you understand your role in the future customer's journey, it'll help you prepare for the future and lead the change. Skill six is to ask your customers for help. So your customers are already marketing experts in your business. Smart organizations enroll their customers in their business processes and to help them make decisions. For example, when Etihad Airways was designing their new A380 service, they asked their customers for ideas and they used 80% of those ideas in the aircraft's design. When Uber faces government pushback in cities, they mobilize their loyal users to campaign on their behalf. When an innovator floats an idea on Kickstarter or Indiegogo or these other crowdfunding sites, they ask future customers to invest money in the idea to help in its development. See, smart organizations treat their customers like partners, not just somebody at the other end of a transaction. So how do you do this? Well, look at a typical product or service development, and it goes through six phases. Uh, choose, design, promote, deliver, support, and feedback. Now to involve your customers more, follow the rule that earlier trumps faster. So the earlier you're in the process you involve them, the better. Let me give you an example from each one of those six areas. And we'll start from the end and we'll work backwards. So feedback is the last step. Ask your customers for feedback after you deliver your product or your service. Now many businesses do this already with things like feedback forms and online surveys. 
Let's take a step back. Support. How can you help your customers to help each other? So it's not just you helping your customers, but how can customers help each other? Of course, you've probably done this yourself as a customer when you use an online help forum of a large organization. What about promotion? Ask your customers to promote and sell for you. Businesses often do this with discount codes and referral rewards. What about even better, delivery? Can you get your customers to provide the product or service that you would normally do? In Monmouth, in Wales, for example, the local council created a Wikipedia site about the town, but it's the local residents who manage it. So the local council has got their customers, the local residents, to actually deliver the product or service that the, that the town council has created. Let's come back to design. Can you involve your customers in product design? Auckland City Council uses a service called streetmix.net whenever they want to make a change to a road layout. They publish that online and their customers, their local residents, can go in there and adjust it and make suggestions. Can you do even better? Can you come back right to the point of choice where you ask your customers to choose the products that you're going to offer? And this is what happens on crowdfunding sites like Kickstarter and Indiegogo. So let's take this and let's do this with your team. The exercise is called Ask Your Customers. For each of these six areas, choose, design, promote, deliver, support and feedback, consider how you can involve your customers more. Now, this may seem a little bit strange. If you've traditionally kept your customers at arm's length, it might seem odd to now try involving them as partners in your business. But go with it. Just be a bit creative with generating ideas with your team. Choose a few of them and then ask your best customers to take part in engaging. And you might be surprised at the results that you get. Skill seven, if it ain't broke, break it. So what are the biggest assets in your business and your industry? So there might be the things that your accountant calls assets, your equipment, your stock, your premises, your cash on hand, other securities, and your intellectual property. They might be less tangible, but still considered business assets, like your brand, your reputation, your license to operate in the industry. And of course, there might be the intangible resources in your business, such as your talented staff, your systems and processes, and a positive culture in your team. Now, these are all assets, no, no question about that, because they're positive features of your business that have built your success. So far. See, the point is that sometimes our biggest assets hold us back from something better. Now, either from inertia or genuine desire to protect what we own, we hold on to our assets and sometimes for too long. Let me give you some examples. Owning premises is an asset because you've got a local presence, you've got more control over the building, and you're not paying a lease. But is it holding you back from moving to a better location, opening other locations, or letting your staff work from home? Another example, you've invested years of your money and effort into building a strong brand, but is it holding you back from doing something really daring because it might damage that brand? One more, one of your strongest assets might be a positive culture in your office. But is that holding you back from expanding your team to include remote workers as well? See, that's how smart, savvy startup com companies disrupt established businesses. They don't have these assets. They don't have these resources. But in this fast-changing world, sometimes that's an advantage. In the past, these assets protected you from newcomers. But now, they might offer only a false sense of security. And they might turn out to be liabilities rather than assets.
So here's the exercise. It's called, if it ain't broke, break it. So think about all the assets, tangible and intangible, in your business. And for each of them, ask this question. If we didn't have this, what would we do differently? For example, if we didn't already have a website, what website would we build? Would we build the website that we've got now? If we didn't have these systems and processes for delivering this service, what service would we really offer? If we didn't have a database of loyal customers we might upset, what radical change could we make? If we didn't have established agreements with our suppliers, what agreements would we create now? Would we even choose those same suppliers? Or would we choose other suppliers to meet what our business needs now? And of course, this is just a thought experiment. Sometimes, after going through the exercise, you'll decide not to give up the asset you've got because on balance, it actually is the best that you've got for your business at the moment. But at least you've thought about it and given yourself the chance to change. Skill eight is to find a reverse mentor. Now you know about mentoring and perhaps you already do it in your business. Janet Wilson, who's the CEO of a Brisbane law firm, Cooper Grace Ward, also does mentoring, but she has an agreement with younger members of her firm to mentor her every month. This is reverse mentoring and she says the conversations are inspirational, sometimes worrying and always refreshing. I make them as casual and friendly as possible. We have fun and lots of laughs at each other's expense. So can you see the difference? What Janet's done is she's getting mentoring from the junior younger members of her firm and that's what reverse mentoring is. The younger the more junior people in an organization provide the mentoring for the older more senior staff. Another example is a firm called the Hartford, which is a financial services group in the USA, and they leveraged the power of reverse mentoring to reach their business goals, which included finding a new kind of customer, understanding the new workforce, and of course, improving their bottom line. And across the organization, 50 mentoring pairs were set up. So 100 people participated in the program, and they, they achieved outstanding results. So 97% of the mentees, uh, the people being mentored, which if you remember, are the senior people not the junior people, they rated it extremely effective for their own personal development. And just as importantly, 11 of the 12 mentors, who remember are the more junior people, um, in the project's first wave, were promoted within a year. And they had bottom line results as well. The business implemented new business practices that saved time and money, they increased social media engagement, and they boosted the internal knowledge and engagement within their teams. So that's the value of reverse mentoring. And in some areas, it's easy to see how your junior people have more expertise than you do. For example, with things like social media, mobile apps and technology, you might just think that in general, the younger, more junior staff have that expertise. So why not ask them for their help? Great, but don't stop at those obvious areas. Also think about how you can tap into their expertise in other areas as well. For example, consumer behavior. They know the way that people of their generation buy. Recruitment, you can find new staff through their networks. Talent management, they value different things from their workplace and they want different things from their employer. And money, they have different attitudes towards saving, wealth and retirement. Reverse mentoring accelerates your learning curve. It gives employees new opportunities, it enhances morale, boosts productivity and creates a closer team. So do it. So the exercise, an obvious one, reverse mentoring. Create more reverse mentoring opportunities in your business. So the first one is that if you're a leader, do what Janet Wilson did. Engage a smart, savvy, younger person 
to be your reverse mentor. Doesn't it be for a long time? Start with three months. So listen to their insights, follow their advice and resist the temptation to think that you're smarter just because you're older and more experienced. Then when you've found how well that works and you've ironed out some of the wrinkles, extend the concept of reverse mentoring to other parts of your business and other leaders in your team so everybody has the opportunity to be involved in it. And if you don't have a formal leadership role, consider whether you can offer reverse mentoring to somebody else. And you don't have to start by approaching a senior leader. Even if you're not confident about doing that, start small. Just suggest a coffee catch-up with a colleague or somebody in another area of the business. Skill nine, the last one, is to use a personal learning network. As you can tell, a recurring theme so far has been learning. From following new technology and trends from outside your industry, from involving your customers and clients, and learning from your own staff and team members. And that's no coincidence when we talk about thinking like a futurist and being fit for the future, because it's very much about being a lifelong learner. Now, of course, there's so much information available to you now. This is easy to just feel overwhelmed by information overload. And that's why it's critically important to build your own personal learning network. And that's a set of trusted sources that you use regularly to consume incoming information. See, without this, you're just relying on random sources such as mass media, a broad Google search, or just seeing whatever your friends happen to share on social media. So the exercise is learn to earn. And this is really important. You can outsource and delegate many parts of your job, but the one thing you must do yourself is to learn, 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 and keep learning. So your personal learning network lets you make some smart, conscious choices about your incoming sources of information. So there are a number of things you could do, like choose the email newsletters that you like and make your email program file them automatically into a reading folder. Choose the blogs that you like and subscribe to them in a feed reader or some other way that you can manage those subscriptions. Choose the podcast you listen to and subscribe to them in your podcast app. If you like books, subscribe to a service like Blinkist, which lets you read the book summaries first before you invest in buying and reading the whole book. Enroll in online courses at places like opentostudy.com, open the number two and then study.com, backed by leading Australian and New Zealand universities, and they provide free, high-quality education to anybody with an internet connection. So take back control of your incoming information and make it work for you, not against you. So we've come to the end of this list of ideas and skills for thinking like a futurist. Let me summarize them for you again. So first we looked at the outside world, so be a possibility thinker, connect outside technology and ask experts outside your industry. Then we narrow the focus to your own customers and clients. So know what problem you solve, map the future customer journey and ask your customers for help. And then finally, we looked at three things which are about your own thinking and mindset. If it ain't broke, break it, find a reverse mentor and then use a personal learning network. So what have you learned there and what can you take away and put into practice in your business and in your role? I admit it can sometimes feel exhausting to operate in such a fast-changing world and to be frank, it's not easy and it does take effort and focus, but it doesn't have to be a constant battle against an uncertain future. You might have heard this quotation from science fiction writer William Gibson, who famously said, the future is already here, it's just not very evenly distributed. And that's the best way to think about the future. It's not evenly distributed. In other words, there are plenty of clues to our future by exploring what else is already out there, and we just need the habits to keep scanning wide 
to find those clues. I wish you all the best in thinking like a futurist. If you want to know what's on the horizon for being fit for the future, then download my app Fit for the Future on your iPhone or Android phone. And I created this app because many people come up to me after my conference keynote presentations or my workshop or my mentoring, and they ask how I do my own research, what blogs I read, what podcasts I listen to, what videos I watch, and they want to follow me, of course, and they want some recommendations so they can become fit for the future as well. So I created this app. I update it regularly with news, articles, videos, uh, other resources to help help you become fit for the future. It's free and is ad-free, so head over to the iTunes store or Google Play and download it now. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and found something valuable for your personal and your professional life. And if you did get some value from it, I would love it if you could do me a favor, give me a review and a rating in your favorite podcast app. And that, that helps to promote it to other people as well. And if you want me to share ideas like this live at your next conference, then check out my speaking topics at gihanspeaks.com. And if you want to engage with me in other ways, go to gihanparera.com, G-I-H-A-N, P-E-R-E-R-A.com, where you can find my blog, newsletter, podcast, and webinars. And they're all free and they're all designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization, your team, and of course, yourself. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. For show notes, past episodes, and more, visit GihanPereira.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.